Hi everybody, welcome to a new episode of the Womenhood and International Relations podcast. I'm your host, Natalia Bonilla, and for today's episode, we will be addressing the global food crisis in 2022. I want to start off this episode acknowledging that this may be a very heavy topic for some of us. The talking about food may be a reason of concern, a reason of fear and worry, depending on our own personal family and community circumstances. That perhaps even thinking of local and national dynamics that are taking place at economic and societal levels may be impacting our perception of food or our relationship towards food. Talking about global food crisis may sound too distant for some of us that may be experiencing acute problems or personal problems in regards to food as well as in regards to water and climate change and conflict and everything that is connected to the causes of food insecurity. I will share with you now how I divided this episode in case you want to stay tuned. I strongly encourage you to look after your own mental health and your own emotional health. There's a reason why I'm recording this episode and I will share with you now why. This episode will be divided in three parts. The first part will be an exploration of the different um, highlights and statistics from the Global Food Crisis 2022 report of the World Food Program that was latest released on uh, May 4th. 2022 last week we will be engaging in a conversation on the different statistics and causes of food crisis food insecurity um, the conversation of hunger used as a weapon of war and perhaps a timeline of the different conflicts that perhaps we have seen throughout the years taking place in different parts of the world the second part of this episode will bring the gender dimensions of the global food crisis and the food insecurity and start connecting um, the dots on our own uh, realities, our own roles and you know, perhaps responsibilities and accountabilities of our communities as well as our local and national governments in regards to this issue. And the last part of this episode will mostly focus on what can we do each one of us today to ensure food security, food safety, and a better and healthier relationship towards food, food access, food distribution, food supply, as well as uh, food stability. I wanted to record an episode that was not only focused on oh, the future is grim, oh, we are doomed, you know, prepare for inflation, prepare for food shortages. Like, I didn't want to record an episode on that because I understand that talking about this issue as well as water, which we have covered previous episodes as well, there's a lot of fear-mongering campaigns, a lot of psychological warfare, taking place at a media as well as at political landscapes. They are using narratives that create and perhaps sustain some uh, fear or perception of scarcity and perception of inequality and you know unequal power relations as well. I don't want to contribute to that. I acknowledge that that's part of what we are living now in this post-truth era. 
But what I do want to contribute is to start understanding how this conversation is connected to our everyday lives and how can we start bettering or improving our relationships towards these resources that are necessary for us to continue living dignified lives. I will leave with you in the description box a list of recommended articles, resources, hunger maps, visualization tools, as well as some recommendations of documentaries for you to start exploring. But I strongly encourage you to do your own research, to practice media literacy, and start looking within your own local and national organizations and institutions what are the statistics? What are the current realities of your own country? Taking accountability for where you are, starting where you are, is as important as paying attention to what's happening abroad. Okay, without further ado, let's begin our conversation today, the first part on the global food crisis in 2022. Let's begin with some definitions so we can, you know, um, understand better the concept of food security, food insecurity, and what food crisis means. According to the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, food security is defined as, quote unquote, ensuring that all people at all times have both physical and economic access to the basic food that they need. That is a 1983 definition that was later revised to include the individual and household levels as well as regional and national levels of aggregation for the security analysis. Later on in 2018, that same definition got expanded to include sufficient, safe, and nutritious food that meets their dietary needs and food preferences for an active and healthy life. I will list it down below on the description box. There are four uh, pillars to food security. Availability, access, utilization, and stability. Food availability means that we have or we acknowledge that food exists around us, wherever we are, there's food available. Access means that, yes, food may be available, but can we get it? Can we buy it? Can we access it? Can we, you know, eat it? Is it safe for us to consume? Is it possible for us to get it or are there you know, dynamics in place that prevent it from happening. The third pillar is utilization. We may have food available around us. We may get that food available to us, but then if we eat it, does, does it contribute to our well-being? Is it nutritious food? Is it something that actually, you know, provides nutrients to our bodies? And the last part is food stability. So, okay, so I have the food available near me. I can get it, it's nutritious for me, but is it possible that tomorrow I will have it too? Or will someone take it away? Or is it not gonna be available anymore? 
those four pillars are part of food security. If any of these four pillars are unmet or are compromised, then it is considered food insecurity. As you can see, this is already a very sensitive topic because it seems by international media narratives and perhaps some local narratives as well that food insecurity only happens when supermarkets shelves are completely empty or when a war erupts or when there's a natural disaster taking place. But we may be experiencing food insecurity right now. If we start asking ourselves those four questions and whether our family members, our communities, our nation may be currently experiencing this concept may be more close to home than simply just something that happens in a very far away place. So how is food insecurity measured? According to the FAO, there's this integrated food security phase classification. This is a classification system for food security crisis based on a, a range of livelihood needs. The indicators that they used are crude mortality rate, malnutrition prevalence, food access and food availability, dietary diversity, water access and water availability, coping strategies, and livelihood assets. These indicators go to a phase classification from generally food secure to chronically food insecure to acute food and livelihood crisis to humanitarian emergency and to famine and humanitarian catastrophe. That's the last um, level of uh, the food insecurity uh, phase classification. Are there different types of food insecurity? Yes, according to the FAO, once again, there are two big types of food insecurity. One that is chronic and another one that is transitory. The transitory is the short-term and temporary food insecurity. It happens because of a very specific period of time. It occurs when there is a sudden drop in the ability to produce or access enough food to maintain a good nutritional status. There are different types of shocks and fluctuations in food availability and food access that may affect in a, even a year supply or food production or food prices and household incomes. And this transitory food insecurity in the difference to chronic is very unpredictable. It can emerge suddenly. The chronic food insecurity is different than the transitory one in the sense that it's long-term and it is persistent. It occurs when people are unable to meet their minimum food requirements over a sustained period of time. It results from extended periods of poverty lack of access and inadequate access to productive or financial resources. And it can be overcome through long-term development measures also used to address poverty, education, access to productive resources, as well as credit and uh, financial means. They may also need more direct access to food to enable these uh, people that are experiencing food insecurity to raise their productive capacity. Just to give you um, some heads up, when we are talking about transitory food insecurity, 
I don't know if you have heard in the news lately how the Ukraine-Russia conflict is affecting the global food supply chains and how it's affecting the global food system and perhaps changing it for the foreseeable future. We are also seeing some um, narratives and reports of inflation and food prices as well as shortages, food shortages in different um, countries around the world. This may be considered at this point in time as a transitory food insecurity crisis. However, if left unattended or if handled poorly due to the different national dynamics as well as international decision-making protocols and implementation programs, it is possible throughout time that it can develop into a chronic food insecurity crisis. So is food insecurity the same as hunger, as malnutrition, or as poverty? According to the FAO, and I quote, hunger is usually understood as an uncomfortable or painful sensation caused by insufficient food energy consumption. Scientifically, hunger is referred to as food deprivation. Simply put, all hungry people are food insecure, but not all food insecure people are hungry, as there are different causes of food insecurity, including those to poor intake of micronutrients. Closing quote. So what are the causes of food insecurity? Depending on the context that we are focusing or living on, this may vary, but according to the World Food Program, World Vision, Concern Worldwide, and several organizations that I'm going to list down below, these are some of the main causes of food insecurity and global food crisis. Poverty, food shortages, war and conflict, climate change, poor nutrition, poor public policy, and economics. According to the World Food Program, Conflict is still the biggest driver of hunger, with 60% of the world's hungry today living in areas affected by war and violence. Climate shocks are also affecting the lives, the crops, and the livelihoods of peoples today, affecting and displacing up to 30 million from their homes globally by 2020. The economic consequences of the COVID-19 pandemic, which started that year in 2020, is also driving hunger to unprecedented levels. According to uh, Plan International, COVID-19 pandemic has led to a steep rise in hunger in conflicts already struggling with conflict, climate change, and economic turbulence. The Global Report on Food Crisis 2022 shares that in 2021, the levels of hunger surpassed all previous records as reported by this specific publication, with close to 193 million people facing acute food insecurity and in need of urgent assistance across 53 countries and territories, according to the findings of this document. This represents an increase of nearly 40 million people compared to the previous high reached in 2020. 
it is important to note that this is uh, reported compasses 53 countries and territories worldwide we have uh, close to 200 uh, states so keep in mind that because um, this report does not feature all countries and there are some data that is missing not only from this specific publication but also from the visualization tools that I will share uh, below in the description box of hunger maps. The document also shares that in 2021 almost 40 million people were facing emergency or worse conditions across 36 countries. Of critical concern were over half a million people facing catastrophe that means starvation and death in four specific countries, Ethiopia, South Sudan, Southern Madagascar, and Yemen. The number of people facing these dire conditions is four times that observed in 2020 and seven times higher than in 2016. During the first half of 2021, localized areas in South Sudan continue to face famine likely. An additional 236 million were in a stressed uh, acute levels of food insecurity across 41 countries and territories in 2021 and required livelihood support and assistance for disaster risk reduction to prevent them from slipping into worse levels of acute food insecurity. This report also showcases that conflict insecurity remains the main driver across the board, creating food insecurity. Economic shocks affected 30.2 million people were, were in crisis or worse in 21 countries last year, with global food prices prices rising to new heights as a result of a combination of factors and the slow economic recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic and the widespread supply chain disruptions. Domestic food price inflation in many low-income countries also rose significantly according to this report and weather extremes were driving acute food insecurity in Africa, specifically in eight countries where um, 23.5 million people in crisis or worse were um, affected by um, these weather-related disasters. There are several tools that can help us better comprehend and visualize the levels of urgency and the matters of uh, concern in regards to food insecurity in different parts of the world. I will share below in the description box, there's a report on the Hunger Hotspots report of 20 countries where uh, conflict, economic shocks, natural hazard, hazards, political instability, and limited humanitarian access are putting millions at risk, um, featuring 10 specific countries that are being affected right now in the most critical conditions. These are Ethiopia, Nigeria, South Sudan, Yemen, Myanmar, the Central African Republic, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Central Sahel, Sudan, and Mozambique. There's another tool that I invite you to check as well, which is the Global Hunger Index released by Concerned Worldwide, the International Food and Policy Research Institute, and World Hunger Health, which is a German organization. 
the Global Hunger Index features 10 hungriest countries of 2021. There's a listing of 10 and, you know, some variations between what the hunger hotspots and the WFP, as well as uh, the FAO shares. These are uh, Somalia, Yemen, Qatar, Chad, Democratic Republic of Congo, Madagascar, Liberia, Haiti, Timor Leste, and Sierra Leone. The Global Hunger Index also features some countries that may fall between some spots, but due to lack of data or lack of um, statistics, um, those um, measurements could not be made. But they make this disclaimer saying that between Somalia and Yemen, countries such as Burundi, South Sudan, and Syria may fall due to the levels of chronic hunger, being experienced in this specific um, context. And in the positions of sixth and seventh um, between Madagascar and Liberia, Guinea, Guinea-Bissau, Uganda, Zambia, and Zimbabwe may fall as well between um, those specific um, positions in uh, um, this index once again. Each one of these tools have different um, paradigms and metrics that they use. In the Global Hunger Index, they had four specific indicators, mostly focusing on children, from undernourishment, child wasting, child stunting, and child mortality. I invite you to check the different reports. Um, you may find some um, complementary information to make better assessments in case this is of interest once again. I also want to share with you uh, some visualization tools because at this point you may be asking, yeah, how does that fit our realities or how can we better comprehend this? There are two tools that I wanna share with you today, perhaps three, three. There's one that is very impactful. It is the hunger map of the World Food Program. It is a very um, visualization tool, a very interactive tool that features the world map. I'm looking at it right now while I'm sharing this with you. And they uh, feature several points in different parts of the world from countries that um, feature very low to very high insufficient food consumption to those that are living in areas with significant rainfall or vegetation deficit and those that are living in areas with significant excess rainfall. I really find this uh, tool very good if you want to see better what the statistics are because at some point we may be like these are just numbers but when we start looking at the world map and we start looking at the red areas at countries such as Afghanistan as Mali as Syria as Chad as Venezuela even that may fall into one of these indexes but as we uh, are being uh, told by these international organizations there is uh, insufficient data to make the reports on where Venezuela fits in terms of hunger and in terms of food insecurity Figure out where your country fits. I really like this hunger map because it also features climate change in a way. There are uh, geographic zones that um, have heavy rainfall or that are experiencing droughts, severe droughts that 
are um, also experiencing conflict or war. Yeah, so this is a good uh, tool map I'm sharing below in the description box. You can navigate uh, with each country. You may not find a lot of countries here, so keep that in mind. There are some areas like, for example, Russia, Canada, Australia, uh, a bit of South Africa that are left um, in the shadows. Venezuela as well is uh, a bit left in the shadows, like we don't know what's going on according to this map once again. So keep that in mind. There's another map from Feeding America, which uh, features food insecurity in the United States. This I also find very interesting because um, there's this perception that, you know, people in the global north have it all figured out and have a lot of money and food and they don't experience food scarcity. And uh, there's this notion that in the United States, they have a lot of food. Well, guess what? In this specific um, tool and map and also check all the different resources from Feeding America and other organizations, there's a... Uh, important distinction that you may have a lot of food available and food access but you may not have money to buy that type of food you may have a lot of food available that is a lot of processed food that may not be nutritious so we go back to what i said in the beginning the the four aspects of food security here you have um, the estimated um, ranking of states that are experiencing poverty, that are experiencing um, uh, high levels of malnutrition, high levels of food insecurity, um, and some areas of states that may experience it more acutely or chronic than others. So this is interesting. Um, however, this um, map goes only to the 2019 doesn't go to 2020 and 2021 they did release a companion an interactive study with projections of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic effect on the food insecurity in the United States as projections for 2020 and 21 um, these are complementary I will feature them below in the description box in case you want to continue understanding this issue there are other infographics shared by Al Jazeera in terms of hunger used as a weapon of war in different countries. In the case of South Sudan, in the case of Yemen, Ethiopia, in the case of Afghanistan. And um, this is a very delicate subject. Um, perhaps we may need another episode to address hunger as a weapon of war. But if there's something to clear out is that this is not an event or a campaign that has been only used in the 21st century. Like it has been used throughout time. And most recently in the 20th century, there were several instances where this happened. I will share down below in the description box timelines and uh, um, resources to see different types of famines taking place either due to lack of resources, either due to conflict itself, or through tactics from governments or rebel forces. Um, in uh, the 20th century, we saw it uh, as a mass starvation campaign from part of the USSR to uh, also mass starvation campaigns from the case of um, uh, Chinese Communist Party 
in uh, um, the 1950s to what happened with the Khmer Rouge as part also not only of the labor camps but also as part of a very uh, direct tactic uh, connected to the genocide and we also saw it with um, the results of conflicts between states and between ethnic groups we saw it in terms of the Biafran famine in the 1960s, 1970s, which was very one of the most acute and chronic that we saw in the 20th century. After um, Nigeria gained sovereignty from the UK and the uh, Eastern Territory of Biafra um, declared its own independence and there was a war that took place and mass uh, starvation was used as a legitimate as a legitimate weapon of war by the Nigerian troops. Um, it affected up to 2 million people. And this is uh, very difficult to swallow because uh, numbers, we have talked about this in previous episodes, may escape our dimensions or you know, um, our proportionality of empathy because um, that's not how our brains work. But um, I invite you to check the different timelines and see the reasoning why hunger is such a powerful tool for those that want to control populations. Um, we have talked about this in a previous episode on the TV series How to Become a Tyrant. In the case of um, Idi Amin in Uganda, how he used mass starvation um, to um, create political stability and also uh, win uh, popularity and you know engage in a war with Tanzania. Um, he was ousted after uh, people uh, experienced high levels of famine. And we also saw it in the case of um, Sudan and South Sudan. And this specific case um, was difficult for me to research. I don't know about you, but it's very difficult because it, they have experienced hunger and famine for over four times in a period of three, 30 years. Like this is very uh, prevalent. Like how you, it's not that you experience it once, is that it's being a recurring weapon of war. And in the case of Yemen, of course, we have talked about Hunger Ward, which is the documentary that features, you know, the 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 deliberate intent to starve people and in how to become a terror in the, the, the TV series we address that dictators use starvation because they weaken the opposition if they don't have food they would not have the will to fight because they are too weak their bodies are too weak to fight and they're more easily uh, controllable to close this first part and go to the other parts of the gender dimensions and what can we do about it? Um, hunger used as a weapon of war. Keep in mind that um, there are different types of um, uses. First, to know that the General Assembly, the UN General Assembly, has indeed um, declared that starvation is a method of war and the deliberate blockade of humanitarian aid are expressly condemned and declared as a war crime according to UN Security Council Resolution 2427 in May um, 2018. It calls states to punish violations on this issue. The uh, Assembly of States of uh, 
the Assembly of States Parties to the ICC, or the International Criminal Court, on December 6, 2019, supplemented the Rome Statute to Fisher with immediate effect that a starvation can also be prosecuted in non-international armed conflicts without having to prove that civilians have actually starved to death. Also keep in mind that there are different levels that Hungary is used as a weapon of war. It's not something that happens, you know, instantly. It, it is a series of acts that take place, different levels. Um, we have addressed some of this in uh, the previous episode where we did the gender lens review of uh, hunger war which is hunger used as a weapon of war in Yemen. And there are three levels of acts that constitute um, this uh, tactic. The first one is the act of commission, which is the attacks on food production, markets, and restriction of people's movements. The acts of omission, which is the failure to act, such as when food relief is blocked. And the act of provision, selective provision of aid to one side of a conflict, something that we are seeing today um, taking place in Afghanistan, specifically with the Taliban regime. And Okay, I'm going to close the first part of this episode and engage in the second part of uh, the gender dimensions and gender inequality and how it's connected to hunger. For those of you that are doing uh, feminist perspectives, feminist research, or feminist advocacy, and perhaps are wondering what are the gender dimensions about hunger <laughs> if you're interested upon that that's what we're gonna um, share here there are um, quite several reports on gender inequality in receiving food aid and in regards to poverty and agriculture but the reports contesting the normative behaviors and traditions, customs, cultures, there are very few that are available online, at least in this part of the world. Once again, we know with the big tech, things may be available in some parts of the world and may not be available in others. So once again, I invite you to do your own research. I found an interesting article by uh, Arpita Wadwa called Eating Last and Least, Analyzing Gender in Global Hunger. And she features an incredible conversation on how women often eat last and least. And she starts this hypothesis that access to food and water is often um, given to men first, then to the children, and then women or the mother is the one who eats last and probably less because everybody else has eaten. She starts connecting these public and private dimensions and how, you know, it's difficult to understand the unequal power imbalances or even contested when most of these um, dynamics and activities take place in behind doors, you know, behind closed doors in our own family homes. Um, I invite you to reflect upon this. I'm going to share the, the article below in the description box for you to check it out, but I want you to start reflecting on it and also reflect upon the dietary and the women's bodies conversation because um, depending on our countries, there may be some um, pressure, social and economic pressures to look a certain way or to eat 
something specifically either to lose weight or to you know look a certain beautiful way depending on the eyes of our family members or depending on our own eyes because we may be influenced as well by social media and by other different um, uh, personal and international or political stereotypes and um, imaginaries so keep in mind this I'm gonna talk it in the third um, in the third part of this episode but um, I find it very connected to perhaps these dietary problems that we may be experiencing in the western world I don't know in other parts of the world but um, these pressures are perhaps connected to um, this food insecurity too in more ways than one in more ways than one um she also features something that i invite you to check which is a, a our scholarly work by um christine shinkin and shelly wright called the hunger trap women food and self-determination and i found that is incredibly interesting if you want to dig deeper into this because they talk about two different circles one of the public sphere and one of the private sphere and it suggests that the public sphere which is often dominated by men is far away from the reach of the women who are in the private spheres this suggests according to this report and to um, the lenses of what was as well that food policies that are created to solve the issue of hunger through interconnectedness and constant interaction of international organizations, states, and multinational organizations fail to penetrate into the women's spheres, furthering their deprivation, leading to more hunger for them. The circle representing the private sphere is off-center, which means that some parts of the circle are closer to the outer circle than other parts. This represents that women are more far off from the access of food, access to the public sphere, sphere than other people. Women in the global south, due to the higher gender inequality, according once again to this research by Shinkin, Wright, and what what had more um, less say and access to food policies and programs that women in the global north. So there's a hunger trap taking place here in the way that programs reduce hunger at a national level, but they don't necessarily reach women. And I want to perhaps dig this deeper if you're interested for an upcoming episode because um, I know that that's a very specific topic. So please be sure to share with us on our Instagram our Twitter at womenhood underscore IR if you want to talk about this issue further or if you recommend um, some uh, scholars, activists, organizations that tackle this issue so we can interview them and you know continue learning together. But this is fascinating. Um, another key uh, topic of the gender inequality is not only in terms of food starvation but also of the fighting against hunger women are on the front lines of this fight oftentimes either as heads or as uh, primary officers of humanitarian aid and humanitarian relief and food programs but they are oftentimes as the same that happens in the water sector 
underrepresented ad forums where important decisions and policies and resources are made. So this is uh, in, in its own a topic of discussion that perhaps we will address in another episode because um, it's heavy <laughs> to bring here and I want to um, take the time and um, you know, research this further. If you're interested, once again, please do share. Okay, I want to close off this episode in the third part, which is what can we do about all of this? How can we improve our relationship towards the food that we have access to, the food that we can buy or produce, the food that gets distributed in our surroundings, in our communities, environments, and the food that also goes to waste and that we are playing a part in, which is another conversation, food waste. Um, I don't know if you know, but um, one third of um, the food produced worldwide, one third goes to waste, is never consumed, which in itself invites us to reflect upon our own roles in uh, this whole conversation in regards to food. Um, we, we're thinking by 2030, according to the Sustainable Development Goals and the UN Agenda, to reach zero hunger, Sustainable Development Goal number two. By that date, um, it has been said that with the COVID-19 pandemic, the 2030 um, goal um, was delayed. So perhaps it's gonna move to 2050. Um, still, that's um, under revision of the international institutions. But something that we can start doing today is, first of all, understanding and asking and doing a very deep reflection upon our own relationship with food. How are we relating to food? Are we knowledgeable of the food that we have access to? What kind of food do we have access to? Do we have the means to acquire that type of food? Are there people in our family, in our communities, in our nations be, that because of race, because of gender, because of um, different professions, um, different um, social stratos, economic um, and class um, means, they don't have access or cannot acquire or utilize or produce or own land or the means or the resources to um, eat food. Is the food that is being accessed to in your communities, in your family, is it nutritious food? Are you actually being nourished by the food that you are consuming? What are the statistics what are the situation? Perhaps there are some reports, some projects, some innovative tools, some campaigns by several organizations at your local community that are doing incredible work researching, interviewing, um, finding ways to create either a local farmer's market or either um, you know creating local products or perhaps creating um, huertos caseros or, you know, home gardens or community gardens. What are ways that you can, looking to what's near you, connect better with what you consume? How can you better 
protect those resources for yourself and for the survival of those around you. If conflict is one of the main drivers of food insecurity, starvation, hunger, malnutrition, etc. If climate change is also becoming one of the main drivers, how can you engage in nonviolent conflict resolution practices in regards to food, in regards to water? And the reason to start reflecting upon this is according to the WFP, if communities are not empowered to withstand the shocks and the stresses they are exposed to, this could definitely increase migration and possible destabilization and more conflicts. We have the opportunity, if you're listening to this, we have each one of us the opportunity, the responsibility, and the accountability to do our part in creating food safety, food security for ourselves, for our loved ones, and for our nation. In the description box of this episode, I will list uh, recommended articles, videos, and documentaries to start engaging in this conversation on food security. What are different ways that we can approach food production, food sustainability? How can we better you know, create our home gardens or community gardens? How to establish a relationship with local farmers, farms markets, what are their importance, the importance of agriculture? How can we start owning land if that's in the case? If we live in urban cities or urban um, scenarios, how can we start collaborating with each other? in order to ensure food safety, food security for all. There are many resources that I'm gonna list down below and also invite you to share if you're interested on our different social media channels. I wanna finish off sharing a bit of my personal story and the story of Puerto Rico in terms of food in case it serves as an example of how can we shift mindsets um, towards a better relationship with food. In my personal case, I come from Puerto Rico. I was born and raised in Rio Grande. I come from a very poor family. And when I was growing up, I was not paying attention to food. I was just eating what my parents gave me. Oftentimes it was bread, breadfruit, yautillas, cookies, and you know, fast food because it was cheaper. The cheaper aspect came at a high price in terms of health and well-being. Not only in terms of myself, but also in terms of my family come from a family that has been diagnosed with diabetes as well as overweight issues. Um, that's something that I'm going to explain in the Puerto Rico part because it has something to do with the way of the U.S.-Puerto Rico colonial relationship and the way that they have been treating our food products. Um, but I myself experienced anemia and chronic eczema since growing up. It wasn't until I was an adult that I started taking charge of my health because throughout my um, child and teenage years, my doctors were always looking at the symptoms as, you know, oh, you are having problems with your skin, but they were not asking about my dietary intake. What, what, is, what was I eating? That was never a question for them. They were not even asking if I was allergic to things that I was eating. And after I became an adult, I started taking charge upon that, starting doing a lot of studies and learning more. And one of the things that I came across back then 
when I started earning an income as a journalist and as a professional was the fact that eating clean, eating good, eating organically and things that were not processed, that were fresh, was expensive if you live in the United States and if you live in Puerto Rico. Back then in uh, um, the 2000s, 2010s, um, Puerto Rico was importing up to 90% of its food imports. We were not producing local products um, the same because there was a huge campaign and historic underlinings here. I'm trying to be very, very brief here, um, but we can do another episode on this that, you know, there's a campaign that going to the land or, you know, being a farmer or owning and you know, going to agriculture means that you were poor or that you could not make more in life because um, there was this heavy notion of the American dream and the American dream implied back then, you know, to own computers and, you know, live through science and go to the U.S. mainland. The whole point that I'm sharing this is that by 2017, when Hurricane Maria devastated the island and the U.S. and the Puerto Rican governments disrespected and you know affected the humanitarian aid that our people was receiving, a shift in mindsets came for the better. You know this blessing in disguise that I was referring to earlier, which was that you know people started to grow their own food to uh, create local products and start honoring the land and start interchanging with each other. Something that, you know, right now I'm living back in Puerto Rico and, you know, in my own rural neighborhood, our neighbors are exchanging food products. Like in my specific case, I have a very small backyard, but we have avocados, papayas, uh, mangoes, you know, and we start um, connecting with our neighbors and sometimes we inter-exchange plantains or goat meal or eggs or some fruits. The whole point is that there was a shift of mindset and the decrease of food imports came and right now we are on the way of continuing sustainability practices and food security practices um, amidst a lot of other controversies going around between the governments local and u.s governments trying to sell our lands our beaches on our um, mountains and more that's a topic for another day um, something hit after Hurricane Maria, which was that shift of mindset. I'm not sure whether or not we need to wait for a natural disaster to hit <laughs> or, you know, a war to come to start paying attention to the way that we are eating. I know that in my specific case with um, going to Miami, living in Miami, being exposed to that specific culture of, you know, clean eating everywhere, but so expensive and, you know, people and influencers, you know, drinking kombuchas every day at three, four dollars at kombucha and, you know, eating plates of 20, 25 dollars, you know, clean rice and beans was really damaging because I was not making enough money to go that route. And one of the conversations that gets missed is where is that food coming from? Is it being imported? Is it being produced there? Is it being, you know, coming at the expense of food that other people could benefit from? You know, that whole conversation on the food supply chain, um, we may, um, engaging to if you're interested 
But um, my whole point here is that perhaps you are seeing at some levels documentaries on plant-based and veganism and, you know, the reasons to, you know, reduce our meat consumption and, you know, reduce a specific intakes of protein or, you know, dietary supplements and all that, depending on the culture that you are in. Uh, it may be affecting also your relationship with food. I know, for example, in my case, being an anemic, I have had a very, very battle trying to find enough protein in the plant-based diet that fits my iron needs. And it's been a very difficult process because at a mental level, we want to make the changes, but then our body is like, um, we are not agreeing upon this. Like, this is not doing much, no matter how many beans and legumes you eat. And I'm sharing this with you because I've been living in urban and rural areas. And I know coming from a rural area is easy to say, grow your own food and grow your own garden. But if you're living in an urban city where the space is limited, or where you don't have the time to do hydroponic and you know engage in that type of you know gardening because that's also another thing. Not everybody wants to become a garden. That's something also to um, take in consideration. How can you find ways, depending on your context, to talk about this issue of food and food security in a safe environment? Either going to a local or a community garden or creating your own home garden or collaborating with people that are actually doing the difference. I don't know what may apply in your case, but what I am very sure, and I'm sharing this example of my case and the case of Puerto Rico, is that it was possible after very hard circumstances to shift and to start looking within and saying you know what we are not gonna depend on food from everybody else and not grow our own food and say hey guess what we are growing our own food hey guess what we are taking charge and accountability for our own health and well-being hey we can eat nutritious food and we want to eat nutritious food because that way our bodies are healthier we need to take care of our bodies and our minds and our hearts and our souls if we want to go the esoteric route. And it is possible. We can overcome it. It may be a long road. I'm still trying to figure out ways to eat better each time without, you know, breaking the bank. <laughs> That's something to explore. Um, but um, it's been a journey. That's the thing. It's a journey. I know it sounds very cliche, but that's all that I wanted to share today um, to, to share with you that it is possible to shift from dependency of others to self-reliance and reliance of the community. The moment that we start agreeing that a new way, a new way to relate to food, to land, to resources, to each other is possible. It may not be possible for everybody in this planet at this current time but it is possible to start today where we are based wherever you're hearing this it is possible to start today if you decide that you want to take part that you want to do something 
That's it for today's episode. I invite you to follow us on Instagram at womenhood underscore IR. On Twitter, the same handle. We are on Telegram channel. You can also become a patron of our community and sustain this podcast with your support. We are growing this more and more. And I'm very, very grateful for your support. And yeah, talk to you soon.